and everyone has a plan till they're punched in the mouth. That's gonna happen every day as a founder. You're probably gonna be punched in the mouth one way or another. And you just have to accept that that's part of, you know, that's just part of the journey. That doesn't mean you're doing a bad job. It doesn't mean you're less light, lucky than anyone else. That's just part of it. And, you know, what's important is getting up off the mat and keeping going on the journey. Hello, 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 and another bonjour as well. I'm super excited because we have episode 61 of the Afternoon Tea, and we have a great guest, an amazing guest out of Toronto by the name of Andrew Graham. Andrew, before we get into the blah blahs, let me set this up with, with an introduction, if you please. Andrew Graham is the co-founder and CEO of BorrowWell, a financial technology company that helps consumers make great decisions about credit. BorrowWell was the first company in Canada to offer credit scores for free and has grown to be one of the country's largest fintech companies with over half a million users. That's amazing. BorrowWell has won numerous awards, including being named one of the top 100 fintech companies on the this earth. Earlier in his career, Andrew held several senior roles in corporate strategy and mergers and acquisitions. Andrew holds an MBA from Harvard Business School and an MA in economics from the University of Edinburgh. He's a frequent speaker on topics including innovation and fintech. Andrew serves are served as the board chair of the Canadian Club of Toronto and co-founded Toronto Homecoming, a social enterprise. Andrew, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, it's my pleasure. Great to be with you. Well, this is going to be fun. I promise you this is going to be fun. So, you know what? Let's just start with the nitty-gritty right, right from the brass tacks. Can you tell me about the creation story of BorrowWell? I'm, I'm happy to, sure. I was working in financial services before this uh, at sort of a mid-sized bank, mm -hmm. and I really was struck as I got to know the financial services world by, sure, some of the ways it's inefficient, but more than that, by the impact that financial services and specifically financial worries have in the lives of so many people. When you do surveys and you ask people, what keeps you up most at night? What do you worry most about? Finances is the overwhelming answer. And I'm sure mm -hmm. we've all been there. I'm sure all of your oh, yeah. listeners can relate to a time when they've worried about their finances. Maybe it's caused uh, some stress in a relationship. They've argued with a partner about finances. If you don't feel comfortable about your finances, it is really hard to focus on anything else in life. And so I think what, what, why that was so impactful for me, and as I spoke to different, you know, different, different potential customers, different friends that I had, different people that whom I knew who had different sort of financial situations and different problems, was just how big of a difference uh, personal finance makes throughout their lives. And I think, you know, helping people uh, find financial prosperity, feel better about their finances, uh, you know, is just a really important calling. So that, that was sort of the motivation that mm -hmm. I found working in financial services. And, you know, that's really stuck with me. And I think, I think helping people feel better about their finances and being, being able to go through the world with more confidence is core to what we do and, and is what gets me up out of bed every morning. Well, that's wonderful. Well, well, I mean, again, we talked about over half a million users, which when you take into, you take into consideration, I bet you it's higher than that right now, but when you take into consideration, we're cutting off the 18-year-olds and lower and the, you know, the 65 and over, above, over, I don't think that's a word, but we'll go with it anyhow, above. Um, and, you know, you have that in between. I mean, that's a huge percentage of Canadians that you've, you've been able to capture. How, how did you attract the, uh, you know, such a, such a huge number? Yeah, and in fact, the numbers the numbers much larger depending how you look at it. We actually have mm -hmm. over two million people Incredible. who have used Borowell. 
Uh, so, you know, that, that, that's a number that's obviously grown over the years, but, but certainly today, well over 2 million people have used Borowell to understand their finances, to get a sense of their credit score, their credit report, et cetera. And we're really proud of, of that. Exactly as you said, Chris, you know, if you, if you look at a typical group of people across the country, uh, chances are a significant number of them will, be, will have used Borowell or, or, and are currently Borowell members today. So that's really exciting. It's exciting that we've been able to have an impact, be it large or small, in the lives of so many people. And I think it goes back to, to you know, my point that finances matter. This isn't just about dollars and cents in a bank account or on a page. It's about how you feel about yourself. It's about how you, how you interact with your friends and family, because all of that's harder to do if you're, uh, if you're worried about your finances. Oh, completely, completely. I mean, sleepless nights. I mean, this is this is health. This is relationships. This is everything. And you know, if you can offer tools to to help people sleep, I mean, think about all that benefit and bonus that you're adding into everyone's lives. I, I love that. Well, Burrowell, awesome name. How'd you come up with it? Huh. Well, I had a I, the, the short answer is I had some help. Um, you know, naming a company is is a challenge, especially if and it's it's important if your company, especially if your company is going to be consumer facing. Because you want something that's easy to remember. You want something that's going to show up in searches. There's a whole bunch of practical considerations. Mm -hmm. And so we spent a lot of time on this and, and we're thinking of different names. Um, and ultimately, uh, you know, one of the people who was really helpful in this journey for me is a gentleman by the name of Philippe Garneau, who's really a veteran of, the, um, of, of building great brands, especially mm -hmm. in financial services. He did a lot of work helping what was then ING Direct come to Canada. He, he's really been at present at the creation of many great brands. And I got to know Philippe during the early days of my, of my journey. And mm -hmm. uh, you know, we were talking about different names and um, over the course of a number of conversations, you know, Borowell emerged as a name that really speaks to what we want for our members. We want people to be able to uh, you know, feel wellness and have wellness about their borrowing and their finances more broadly. Mm -hmm. And as a big bonus that, you know, that name, no one was using it. Uh, it hadn't been used. The .com was available. The .ca Amazing. was available. Uh, so we were able to move forward with that. And, and we, of course, talked to people and asked them, what did they think of this name versus other names? And I think, you know, it really struck me and, and you know, the rest of the team Team as a name that captured what we wanted for our members. And, and that's why ultimately why we went for it. And, and it is a great name. I gotta say it, it's simple. Uh, and, it, and it speaks to everything. Well, I, I mean, again, we did a lot of homework before, you know, cause we want it, we want to really get the story out of, of all the amazing things you've done and you've done some amazing things, but I believe from, from what I said, and you can correct me here that Burrowell was your first startup. Uh, as, as, a, as a corporation. Is that true? And how scary was it to move from some of these big names that we'll go through that you were, you know, you're a senior, you played a senior role in to doing a startup? What, what, how, did, um, how did that go through in your mind? So I was at a point in my career where I was really, really excited about the idea of starting something. I'd spent some time working for larger companies mm -hmm. and I was um, really excited about the idea of founding something. We may talk later on about Toronto Homecoming, which is a not-for-profit mm -hmm. that I founded, uh, uh, you know, or co-founded. And that experience, which happened before Borowell, really showed me how exciting it can be and how gratifying it can be to found a, found a company. And so you're right, Borowell is my first for-profit startup, if you want to, mm -hmm. if you want to call it that. Um, and, you know, it's, uh, I, I think there were lots of reasons why that was the right next step for me. Someone I respect a lot, 
uh, is Yusri Basada, who's, who's had a number of senior roles in financial services in Canada. And an insight that he shared with me that I've shared many times since is when you think about a, a job, in any job you're going to have, there's going to be tough days. That's inevitable. There's no job in the world where, you know, every day is, is easy. And when you're thinking about a big company versus starting your own company, you can think about the emotions that you experience on a bad day. And when you're at a big company, the emotion you feel most often on a bad day is frustration. Mm -hmm. you know, I couldn't get something approved by my boss or the whatever capital allocation committee said no. I'm sure any of your listeners who have been at a big company can relate to the frustration that can happen when you're, you know, one person among hundreds or thousands in a large company it can be mm -hmm. challenging to navigate. Whereas if you're starting your own business, and I'm sure that that you know anyone who started a business can relate to this, a bad day is about fear. It's mm -hmm. about, am I going to make payroll? Or mm -hmm. can I retain this key employee who's just got a big offer from someone somewhere else? Mm -hmm. Or what about this key customer that now is, you know, maybe not going to sign the, this, the, the contract because they're asking for more features. And so I think a lot of the decision about whether to be an entrepreneur really comes down to what, what kind of a challenging day are you most, are you most comfortable with? Some mm -hmm. people are very comfortable saying, look, I can leave the frustration at work and go home and, and that's fine. I don't want to be, I don't want to deal with the fear. I think for me, I found that I was much more comfortable leaning into dealing with the challenges that come with fear. How do you, you know, how do you hire that next great employee? How do you find the next customer? How do you close the funding round? Mm -hmm. That was a much more comfortable place for me and, and much, you know, more suited from what I love to do in my temperament. Mm -hmm. And I've never looked back. I mean, that's, I, I certainly learned a lot while I was at big companies and, and bad benefited from that. But the most gratifying part of my career has been the last the last years at Borowell. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, I mean, you kind of touched it, but I just wanted to ask the one question. I mean, because again, you worked in some pretty, pretty big corporates uh, before. Did having those jobs, because it sounds like, you know, philosophically, it's totally changed in terms of the stresses and all that. But did you, was there an advantage to having those jobs, but, you know, for working for, for the man um, and then doing your startup? Or would you have been happier if you think you just went straight to startup? I think I learned a lot working at larger companies. Mm -hmm. You know, you learn a level of rigor uh, mm -hmm. and a level of, um, you know, how a well-organized company, what that, what that looks like. And I, I did work mm -hmm. for some really interesting companies. I spent part of my career at Nortel, which of course was a great Canadian technology company. Mm -hmm. It's really sad how things ended up. Mm -hmm. And I was, you know, thrown in as that company was going through the sort of restructuring bankruptcy process. Mm -hmm. And I had, which as a Canadian was very sad to, to observe, mm -hmm. but I had the opportunity to try to help find, you know, homes for different parts of that business. Mm -hmm. And you really learn an, a huge amount as you go through any sort of mergers and acquisitions activity. Mm -hmm. You learn a lot about how deals are done, you mm -hmm. know, what lawyers do, how companies are valued. Um, what investment bankers do. So I, I feel I got a really great education in a very small number of years in the various corporate roles I had. I was always fortunate to have, you know, pretty high impact, high responsibility roles. And that sort of, you know, call it four years or so that I spent after my MBA in, in different corporate roles, I learned, I learned an awful lot from. And mm. as I said earlier on, I mean, it was, 
it was through my my sort of the corporate part of my career, the large company part of my career, where I got a lot of exposure to financial services and the challenges that people have with their finances. And so that, you know, all those experiences really led me to where I am today. No, I, I, I dig that. And, and you know, I, I, when I saw that you were uh, corporate, what was it, corporate development and global M&A of Nortel, and I had to look up the year and I realized, oh, that must have been really hard. Because again, this is, I mean, for the younger generation, they don't understand how important a company like Nortel is to Canada, the technologies. I mean, when, when um, the bankruptcy or the liquidation did happen, I mean, the amount of big companies that went after those patents, I mean, that must have been a very interesting part of having to, you know, figure out, okay, well, this clearly has value. Was, was that part of your role was to figure out where these patents are going to be living and, you know, trying to, trying to uh, sell those assets? Yeah, one of the most complicated parts of that whole process was the intellectual property, was the patents. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, as different parts of that business were being sold, you know, imagine you're buying the, um, you know, the, the, uh, you know, the Ethernet business, you know, the part of the business that was really good at, it had technology to transport data across Mm -hmm. fiber and other kinds of technology. Well, there's patents associated with that. So Mm -hmm. if you're the buyer, you've got to make sure that you're able to take those patents or at least get licenses for those patents. Mm-hmm. And, and, but what made it complicated is maybe a different part of the business also needed some of those patents or some of those licenses. So mm-hmm. sorting all of that out was a huge amount of work by people much more experienced in patents, by the way, than, than I was. But mm-hmm. working that into the deals and figuring out who was going to get which aspects of the IP in what form you know, was really important. And again, was existed at a level of complexity that I wouldn't have experienced you know, in my own uh, business for, you know, for a number of years, certainly. So, mm-hmm. you know, that, that was a, a really terrific learning experience mm-hmm. for me, at, you know, dealing with a level of complexity and groups of lawyers and so forth, uh, where I learned a, a, a heck of a lot. Um, oh, I bet. I bet that must, that must have been an amazing time. I mean, again, for our younger, for our younger listeners, I mean, I think the layoff was 15 or 20, but I mean, it was a big number, unfortunately, as the company kind of imploded, let's just say how, how many, when you were there, how many employees were still left? And was it just kind of like management trying to figure out what to do with the assets or was, was it still kind of trying to chug along as a company at that point? Uh, So I, you know, I joined in, uh, you know, in 2008 Mm -hmm. and, you know, I joined at a time, if you recall, you know, there was a financial crisis in 2008 Mm -hmm. where, you know, Certainly, the mortgage market played a big piece of that, and, and you know there was there was really a meltdown in, in the asset backed more uh, you know lending space in the U.S. and in, in the mortgage market and so forth, and that that led to a recession that caused a lot of companies to spend less and especially spend less on on things like capital and unfortunately things like telecommunications gear that that's exactly the sort of spending you would put off if you were a large company, and so that was very painful for Nortel. So I joined. You know, look, the the process I went through to decide to join is one that I've used in many parts, many different aspects of my career, which was to say, what's a sector or what's a a company that's in in a real period of change Mm. and where there's going to be an opportunity for lots of, you know, movement and and, and career opportunity, learning opportunity for me as I I go. So I've always been attracted, I think, to, to places that are going through change, that are going through um, an evolution. Mm-hmm. And so I, 
you know, I had the opportunity to join Nortel. Look, I was hoping for it to be a turnaround. I wasn't mm -hmm. expecting or hoping for it to be a bankruptcy, of course. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but I, you know, I joined knowing it was a company in trouble. Everyone knew that at that point. Mm -hmm. And I was hoping I would be part of a great Canadian turnaround. Unfortunately, as the economy turned uh, soon after, um, you know, I ended up being part of something different, which was a which was a process where the different parts of the company had to find homes, and the and there were a lot of people that that whose jobs were saved along with that because mm. you know the buyers of the different parts of Nortel in most cases were very interested in the team and in the mm. brains that had built had built those businesses, and so having that talent go to you know and be part of other companies was a mm. key was a key part of that. So. You know, as sad as a story as it as it was for Canada that that Nortel ceased to be as a company, many of the great people, of the really smart people who worked there, ended up finding homes in other in other businesses, and that's why processes like that are important. You wouldn't want the company just to disappear. Better mm. for the people and for for the certainly the debt holders and others that that those businesses find homes. Oh, I really, I really appreciate the way you described that. I mean, it really just show you know the the way you want to be thinking about you know every business is human at the end of the day. Um, and I, I really appreciate that you're not seeing it as assets as I was trying to actually picture it in my mind, but really these are humans behind the assets. I mean, the, the reason why they created so many great assets is all the humans behind it. And if you could find homes for them, especially in the great companies, you know, I, I remember it was like Microsoft and those who were purchasing the assets. I mean, these were very, you know, large um, enterprises in their own right. Um, I just really appreciate you saying that. I mean, I always, I always kind of think of in a very similar way. Uh, I, I'm, a, I'm a big AV, uh, aviation fan, and uh, you know the Avro Arrow, and when they, when they shut that one down, you know, we we'll get a little Canadian story here. When they shut that down, and how many of those people instantly got scooped up, you know, by NASA or any of these American organizations, and kind of realized, oh, that might have been a bit of a mistake, you know, you know, for the future. Um, but it does recognize, I mean, the, the talent that we have, and you know, what, what, you know just how we can try to keep them within Canada or at least within, you know, within, within something that everyone can benefit from. And I really do appreciate that you, that you're looking at that way. Um, well, you know, one thing that really, really, you know, interested me is the fact that you were a past president of the Canadian club of Toronto. I mean, that sounds about as uh, elegant and regal as you can get. Um, what were your roles with that and why that organization? Really throughout my career, I think I've, enjoyed being part of, you know, different organizations in different capacities. So I've, I've, I've really enjoyed being part of some great nonprofits and charities mm -hmm. as a board member and as a volunteer. And I find, you know, no matter how, how busy my day job, there really is a lot to, um, to, to be said for finding different opportunities to volunteer your time. I've certainly mm -hmm. found that. And for me, the Canadian Club was was an example. The Canadian Club is a one of the oldest, you know, nonprofit organizations in the country. It has hosted. It essentially hosts important speakers, so people mm -hmm. that speak about the economy or politics or what have you. It's hosted people in the past, like Winston Churchill, many Canadian prime ministers, and so it really is. You know, Canada is in Toronto certainly podium of record, mm -hmm. and. You know, that that was a, I, I started my career before my MBA and before Nortel and everything else. I spent a few years working in politics in Ottawa. Mm -hmm. And I believe that that there's lots of important things that that politicians and political leaders can do and, 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 and do do to make, you know, make countries and cities and provinces better. And so, you know, we're, all of that sort of came together for me as I was 
what was called president, really chair of the board at the Canadian club. And so mm -hmm. that was something I did alongside my work at Borowell. And I had the opportunity to provide direction to that organization. There's a great staff team that does the real day-to-day -day work, but I was, mm -hmm. I was able to work with them and the rest of the board to try to get great, you know, to attract terrific speakers Mm -hmm. uh, and to host those speakers and provide a forum for them to speak to Canadians. Some of those speakers were, were Canadians and some were prominent people from abroad uh, mm -hmm. who would come and speak to our audience. And, you know, we, we hosted over the years, the Canadian club has hosted, you know, former prime ministers like, you know, Brian Mulroney and Paul Martin and others, as, as well as very prominent business leaders. So, you know, being part of that organization was a way to, sure, it was a way to give back, but it was also a way to, be involved in, an, in another part of the uh, another part of the country, uh, and to be involved in those public issues. And I think selfishly, look, it it was also a way to get the name of Borwell more out there. I mean, there's not a lot of overlap traditionally between the technology world in Canada and that sort of public policy world. And being at the podium, you know, once a week and saying, "Hi, it's Andrew. I work at Borwell, and I'm pleased to introduce so and so." I think, in a, you know, selfishly was was it was good exposure for the company, and uh, certainly great practice for me as a as a speaker, and, and great to build the profile for um, for what we're doing. I think that's I think that's awesome, and it's really smart too. I mean, you're going right to the the not the elite, but those who want you know you want to be here listening to, and uh, they definitely have influence. And and you know, I hear the the political thing, and I speak to you, and I I, and I clearly understand that I think you'd make an excellent prime minister. You got my vote already. That's what I'm going to say. Is that something you know when Burrowell has 10 million users uh, lined up? Is that something that you're like, okay, I got there. I'm running for the you know, sorry sorry Justin, I'm running for it now. Is that is that ever in is that ever in the cards? Uh, I think the answer is is almost certainly no. I'm I'm having a lot of fun doing what I'm doing, mm -hmm. and uh, it's it's pretty thrilling to be able to build build businesses and build companies that have real that have real impact. There's lots of different ways to have impact. I'm a I'm, I'm a big believer that you know politicians. Uh, it's a, we need political leaders who are smart and capable and can have impact. But we, but those of us who are entrepreneurs can also have huge amounts of impact mm -hmm. in the world. And for sure, some of the entrepreneurs I admire most. Um, have have done that and have certainly had very, you know, sort of pro, you know, very, very mission driven. I guess I should say have, they're, they're, they tend to be very mission driven people. Mm -hmm. And certainly at Borowell, we we think of ourselves and in, in are very mission driven as well. We think we are we're not here just to you know make investors or or employees money. We hope we do that as a side effect, but ultimately we're here to you know, help people feel better about their finances and, and, you know, to use an expression that's trite in that, in that way, make the world, make Canada, uh, make people's lives a bit better than, than they'd otherwise be. Nothing trite about that at all. I think that's an amazing goal. And, uh, and, and, you know, I, I really applaud you for, for, for thinking in that angle. I think that's great. Well, Toronto homecoming, I'm, I'm really interested in this because I believe from my research, this is where you met your co-founder Eva as well, is it not? That's right. That's right. So Toronto homecoming was yeah. really important for me for two reasons and mm -hmm. maybe before i talk about those two reasons let me tell you what it what it please, was please so the, i moved back to toronto in 2008 and separately eva wong also moved back to toronto about the same time we'd both been you know separately living living abroad and i think we each experienced the same thing which is that it's hard to connect with the toronto job market it's hard to find great opportunities when you are abroad because toronto like many cities it's all about networking, right? Mm -hmm. It's about meeting someone who knows someone else who knows someone else, and then you find a great job opportunity. 
That's, mm -hmm. that's how many, many job searches in this city, at least, uh, work. And so that can be very hard to access if you're abroad. Now, at the same time, you have many businesses and other organizations based in Toronto who are looking for new sources of talent and love mm -hmm. the idea of finding talent with international experience. I mean, you know, half the people who, who live in Toronto were born abroad. This is a city that thrives and is built on international talent and experience. Mm -hmm. And so what was missing, and this is a classic marketplace problem, right? You've got people abroad who want to find opportunities in Toronto. You've got companies that want to hire people who have experience abroad, but they're, they're sort of a, 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 a mismatch. They don't come together. They don't find each other. Mm -hmm. And so Toronto Homecoming uh, was a way to solve that problem. And we would, what we did is we hosted events a number of times, uh, you know, typically one, one large event a year mm -hmm. where people who were living abroad and who had an interest in finding an opportunity in Toronto would apply and we'd choose people who had really, you know, great, uh, great careers uh, ahead of them and behind them mm -hmm. um, to come and network with companies who were looking to hire. And, you know, many, many people found job, found jobs and found, uh, you know, found opportunities based on the work that Toronto Homecoming did. Hmm. And it's something that I'm really proud of. I think it was, sure. you know, it was a great initiative. Uh, once, once Eva and I started Borwell, it, it was very hard to sort of juggle everything. And mm. I, we sort of have, 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 indefinitely paused Toronto homecoming, but I think, I think for the five or so years it existed, it did a lot of good. And so what were the two things that I got out of that experience? Mm -hmm. Well, number one, I, you know, really discovered that I enjoy building things and ultimately founding things. Mm -hmm. And so Toronto homecoming gave me the confidence. And I think gave me the insight that what I wanted to do next in my career was found something and Borowell, of course, came out of that. And then number two, I had a, just a terrific experience working alongside Eva as a co-founder of Toronto Homecoming. We got along well. We were on the same wavelength, um, uh, you know, from a work perspective. And when I was in the process of founding Borowell and, and had been, you know, working on the business plan and working to raise the initial round of capital over the course of a number of months, I reconnected with Eva, who was then finishing a maternity leave and said, look, here's what I'm up to. And uh, she said, I'd love to come. I'd love to come be part of this. And, you know, very fortunately, well, it, I mean, the, the best decision I made was to say, yes, that sounds like a great, a great thing. I don't, you know, it, that, that was a key moment in the founding of the company because mm -hmm. Eva's brought a terrific, uh, you know, amount of, of, of a terrific, you know, talent. And, and she brings so many qualities to the company and has been my, my business partner uh, ever since that. So, you know, Toronto Homecoming was so was really a crucial personal uh, turning point for me for those reasons. That's awesome. I mean, you know what? You're you're doing great things for the community. You're doing a test run for Borrow Well uh, by learning if you work well together. Um, maybe maybe we should offer a challenge here for any any of our listeners that if you if you're not ready to do the startup thing yet, try to think of a way that you can impact the community. You know, that's a good test run for it, and maybe made a partner or two there for that uh, that can take you to that next that through that next challenge. Well, one thing that I thought was really interesting um, is uh, you have always studied uh, from the University of Edinburgh and the University of Harvard. I'll, I'll say it the way you're supposed to say it. Um, is there a reason why you always chose to go abroad for school? I had a great experience growing up in. I grew up in Ottawa, and I went to public schools throughout, and really had a great. Uh, a great set of experiences um, it, it's, you know, fr from elementary school, high school, I, I really loved, loved all my, uh, all my school experiences. I also loved going abroad and I had had a few opportunities to travel when I was, when I was younger, you know, trips with parents and, and so forth. 
And I was just fascinated by the idea that there's a much bigger world out there beyond Ottawa, beyond Canada. And it was a world I didn't know a lot about. And so when I was applying for universities in high school, I, I applied to some you know, great Canadian universities mm -hmm. and also in some ways on a whim applied to some universities abroad. And uh, I, I had traveled to Scotland before. It's my, you know, I guess my, 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 my family's background, if you will. I grew up, of course, here, but my, my family's background many gener you know, generations ago. Mm -hmm. And so I got this, this acceptance from the University of Edinburgh to study, to study there. And uh, I decided to go for it. And I, I don't think I really understood what I was getting into by, you know, moving abroad at, at age, whatever, 18 or 19. And um, I, I just sort of assumed that, you know, because the language is the same, it, this won't be that big of an adjustment. Well, it was actually was a big adjustment. And, you know, even from a language perspective, I, it, it is <laughs> sort of the same language, but anyone who's ever traveled much in, in Scotland or, you know, in other parts of the, of the English speaking world, you know, nothing is exactly the same place to place. So thank goodness. It, it, it was a big, exactly. So it was a big adjustment for me, uh, but I learned a lot and I really learned a lot about myself. And I, ironically, I learned a lot about Canada, I think, by being abroad, you really start to appreciate what's different and what is, you know, what, what, what makes one place, you know, um, more to your liking or not by being, a, by being abroad. Uh, so uh, that, that was a, a really important experience for me. That's great. I mean, the contrast, you know, you, you, do, you do figure this out. And University of Edinburgh, I mean, I've been there. It's gorgeous. It is Gorgeous the school. Actually, our, our CEO Jose, his dad, he lived there because his dad was a prof there for a couple of years. So he was he he's the Mexican kid, um, you know, living living in Edinburgh. And he said they didn't really talk too well to each other, but the soccer made them be equal. So that that was that was that was a, the good part of being in Scotland. And uh, well, that's great. Well, Harvard. I mean, obviously, getting that letter of rec you know, being accepted uh, must have been a, a bit of a bit of a jump in the air for you. Can you can you tell me what it was like to get accepted? What 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 it felt like? Yeah, you know, I um, I had been as I had been working in politics for a few years in in Ottawa, and I knew that the next stage of my career I wanted to do something else, and I knew that you know as much as even though I had studied economics in my undergraduate studies in, in Edinburgh, I didn't I never worked in the private sector. I didn't really understand you know what companies did or or, or what was involved, and I and I and I knew that was a gap that I really wanted to to fill. And what I always admired about Harvard Business School was that its focus has always been on, as, as they say, educating leaders who make a difference in the world. And that's much more than just business leaders. I think Harvard Business School sees itself as a, an institution that builds leaders across a bunch of different, uh, different fields, whether nonprofit or, um, or, or you know, politics or, or business for that matter. Mm -hmm. And so I was always really attracted to that to that aspect that this isn't just about learning accounting this is about you know becoming a better leader and i think that's really a set of skills that i wanted and i wasn't sure exactly how i was going to make you know you know make my mark or where i would go into afterwards but i knew that sort of learning those 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 fundamental skills like how to read a balance sheet or how to think about marketing or how to think about managing people were going to be important and so, you know, I applied there and I, I think, you know, it's, it's the only time in my life that I was sort of, um, a, you know, viewed, I think, through the lens of diversity, because, uh, you know, even though I'm, I'm, I'm a white male um, uh, heterosexual, I, what was different about me is that I was coming from Canada and I was coming from politics. And, you know, as it, as it happens, there's lots of people who come from more traditional business backgrounds who apply to MBA programs. But I think I brought something a little different. And I think some of the experience, experiences I had had 
were, were, were you know, I think in, in, in their eyes worthwhile and also different. So mm -hmm. I, I, was, I was really hopeful that that would lead to, lead to good things. Of course, I applied to other places as well. I, I had no idea if I'd get in or not. But when I did get in, it was, it was such an exciting moment. And mm -hmm. I, had, I, just, I had such a terrific experience uh, in those two years. Mm -hmm. I know in the tech world, there's lots of mixed views about you know, the values that do MBAs bring, does that degree bring value? Should you just sort of get into building a company when you're 25? And of course, there's no one right answer. There's lots of different paths to, to, finding, to finding success. I learned so much in that, in that, in those two years. And I met okay. so many terrific people and I had such a, a, you know, a great and fun personal experience. I, I just, I wouldn't trade that for, for anything. I, so it was, it was for me just a, a terrific experience. I love that. I mean, the schooling is one thing, especially at a small school. Like Harvard, everyone thinks Harvard's like a, a UBC or University of Toronto, like this monster school, but it, it's a really small school at the end of the day. But it's these relationships, I think, especially at the graduate level that, that you make. Um, and, you know, doing my homework, I was, I was really, really, really uh, fascinated to see that you um, tended, though, at a, I guess, a, a year apart with Michelle Zatlin, uh, from founder of Cloudflare and also past guest on, on the show. Um, did you get to know her at all or, you know, get to be, Hey, we're the Canadians or maybe there was multiple Canadians, um, in, in the program. Yeah. So I, I so Michelle was one year, I, I was one year earlier. She was one year behind me and I did get to know Michelle because ex exactly as you've suggested, you know, there is a limited number of Canadians. There's typically about, I don't know, 30 or 40 in a given year. At least there was back then. Mm -hmm. And there's a Canadian club and mm -hmm. I happen to be president of the Canadian club in that second year. So part of my, mm -hmm. I wouldn't have been doing my job if I hadn't tried to meet all the Canadians. Mm -hmm. And I just remember uh, Michelle Zatlin just being such a genuine and kind and warm person. Uh, you know, every time I met her, she would, she was friendly and would always say hi. Mm -hmm. And it's just so gratifying to see, you know, it's nice to see nice people win. And it's mm -hmm. been so gratifying to see all of her success and what she's built with Cloudflare, and I know that HBS is an important part of that story because she oh, met her co-founder there, mm -hmm. and they went on, of course, to build uh, build a terrific business. So I, 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 you know, I did meet her there, and and uh, I'm I'm pleased that we've we've stayed in touch uh, over the years. I think that's awesome. Well, were there any other? I mean, thirty, you know, thirty Canadians you said around. Uh, were there any other famous people that you you went to school with, Canadian or not? So I went to school with with a lot of people who had done really terrific things beforehand and have and have built great businesses and great nonprofits uh, since. Um, one of my one of my best friends uh, when I was there came from the world of American politics and maybe we kind of bonded because we both come from a political world and mm -hmm. he had worked for uh, for 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 President uh, George W. Bush. Mm -hmm. Uh, in as as his personal aide, so the the person oh, who's wow. sort of with the president day in day out. If, if for anyone who watched the show The West Wing, this is sort of Charlie's job. <laughs> for anyone who can relate relate to that, and uh, you know, even though we came from sort of different political spheres, um, uh, you know, we we really got along well. And uh, you know, he, he's been someone that I've kept in touch with, and who's who's I think a you know just a really upstanding and, and terrific guy. And during the course of my time there, he actually took a couple of us to, to on a visit to the White House. So we actually wow. went to the White House and uh, had a had you know just a terrific experience and 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 met the, the the president and had a whole bunch of opportunities to learn about you know as, about you know the the U.S. the American political system. So that was probably one of my most special Amazing. memories, and I I think of him as 
as uh, you know, whether or not he's famous, he worked for, you know, what's more famous than the US presidency, which of course involves so many, the work of so many people. Oh, so sure. I, I, I think fondly of that experience. And, you know, there, there were also many people that had done really amazing things who, who weren't famous. I mean, there were, there were, there's quite a large contingent of military leaders mm-hmm. who go through the MBA program at Harvard, who came from you know, in some cases, you know, clandestine work in Afghanistan or Iraq oh. or other who had really amazing stories of leadership in mm-hmm. a military context, which was not a, not a world that I knew anything about. So there's there's, um, you know, many accomplished people. And, and uh, it was a it was you know, part of the magic is learning, learning from them. I, you know, I, again, I love hearing the, that you're sharing these people because, you, you know, I'm, I'm guessing from the way you're, you said it, maybe you didn't face the same political views, but you communicated and became friends and understood, you know, and I think that's important, especially when you're learning uh, at the, at the university level, because at the end of the day, you might not be able to uh, agree, but you can learn to, you know, to disagree and agree at least in, in, in ways of respect. And I, I think, uh, I think that's, that's really, really cool. What I did read as well. Um, now I, when I was going through university and again, UBC, not, uh, not, not Harvard, but all the same, I was really happy. Um, I had two magazines that I subscribed to at all times, The Economist and McLean's. Okay. It's kind of the thing we all did, but I saw that you got to write for The Economist as a grad student. What was that like? That must've been exciting. Yeah, that, that was a really fortunate opportunity. I, in my, in my undergrad, as when I was an undergrad in the UK, I started reading The Economist and really felt that I was learning, you know, as much from, from reading that every week as, as I was from, from, you know, some classes Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I did then what I've done a few times in my life, which is I just made a cold call. I wrote an email uh, to to one of the editors or uh, and enclosed. I'd done some writing for the school newspaper and I enclosed that. And I said, do you ever take interns? Mm-hmm. And I, I didn't know. I had no connection. I didn't know anyone. And quite amazingly, I actually got an email back saying, can you fly to London on this day and we'll interview you? Wow. And I remember that I flew, uh, I flew to London and it was certainly one of the hardest interviews I've ever had. There was no, no question like, tell me about your background or, you know, tell me what you're studying. It was, you know, it, the, the first question and I can so, still remember it was, you know, what makes Canada different from any other country? Or tell me about how you'd contrast the UK healthcare system with a Canadian healthcare system. And I think, you know, so they were really sort of very subject matter related questions. What they wanted to see, could I explain things succinctly? Did I have a good sort of working knowledge of different topics? Mm -hmm. And I was really fortunate that at the end of that process, I was hired as a summer intern. And I I had, you know, other than writing for the new, you know, university newspaper, I hadn't had any experience as a journalist, Mm -hmm. but I was so fortunate to learn from some terrific people. And I wrote about a dozen articles, but what was even more um, challenging, I think, and formative than writing those articles is for anyone who reads The Economist, you know, there's the sort of the politics this week page at the front, which is essentially a a series of like one or two sentence summaries of key news topics. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I was in charge of of writing parts of that page at various, for various weeks. And there's nothing harder than trying to communicate (laughs) a very, you know, complex subject using like... 15 words. It's like, you know, there's been a coup somewhere. How do you say in 15 words, what's most key? And I would find myself writing these sentences and then I'd give it to an experienced editor and they'd like take out half of the words and the sentence would be like way clearer and nothing Mm -hmm. had been lost. 
Mm. And so that was such a formative experience for me as a writer and as a you know communicator to sort of like see what a skilled a skilled person can do to make language really really clear. Less so I, I wrote about a variety of topics, some of which I, I pitched, some of which they sent me to, to you know, to cover, um, you know, and I learned, I just learned a lot from that experience. And I, I think more than anything, I, I learned that the best jobs are ones where you're not, that you're not fully qualified for. And if you're fortunate enough to get it, get jobs like that, you can, mm-hmm. you can really learn a lot. So, you know, that, that's been a key piece of advice for me. And by the way, that, that happens every day for me. I mean, uh, you know, mm-hmm. we have about a hundred and 60 people now at Bora Well. Well, I've never been the CEO of a company with 160 people before. Mm-hmm. So there, there's a I, I'm learning every day and having to to figure out every day what to what to do. So you know, if anyone's listening and and thinking about about you know career uh, career advice, certainly a big piece of advice for me would be try to find roles that you're really not qualified to do, uh, but where you think you can stretch if you stretch yourself and find the right mentors, you, you'll be able to to get it done. Those are pretty fortunate opportunities. That's fantastic. I mean, roll the dice, right? To find something you want it you want to do. And I mean, I always say it here, if I didn't found this company, I'm probably the least employable person on earth. So <laughs> I kind of had to do it in a bit of a way. Um, well, oh, gosh, Andrew, I'm having so much fun. But there's, you know, there's two questions that I ask every single um every every single one of these uh, little uh, little interviews. Um, mostly because of the theme again is we're gonna talk to wonderful uh Canadian founders like yourself in order to prepare that next generation of startups. Um, but you know, the first question I want to ask you is can you uh, share one piece of advice to help a younger Canadian founder? Sure. Um I, I think I think more than anything else, I would say, you know, understand that there are going to be hard days. And there's a terrific blog post um, that I really like um, uh, by Ben Horowitz that, that's called The Hardest Part About Being a CEO is Managing Your Own Psychology. You can Google it. It's, it's out there. And what he explains, which I think has rung true to me on, you know, many times, is what's hard, one of the hardest things as a startup founder is that you know you get good news and you get bad news sometimes in the same day or the same hour and you go from feeling like you're going to be the next you know the next google to feeling like your company is going to go bankrupt and it can mm-hmm. be really really hard to manage those those sort of those sorts of emotions and i remember like there has certainly been times in in borowell's history that we've had some real challenges and you know i remember early on we were you know, months away from running out of capital at one point. And really, I was very worried about, are we going to get this round that we're trying to get done, mm-hmm. done in time to, you know, to keep going here. Mm-hmm. And then you get it done and you feel like you're on, you're on top of the, uh, you know, you're over the moon. Mm-hmm. And I think being able to bring that, you know, understanding that that's part of, that's part of it, that, that part of this journey involves the good times and the bad times mm-hmm. um, is, you know, is, is really crucial. And I think I wish I had known that. I mean, another, another quote that I love a lot, you know, which is attributed to Mike Tyson is that everyone has a plan till they're punched in the mouth. Oh yeah. Well, like, like that's going to happen every day as a founder, you're probably going to be punched in the mouth one way or another. Mm -hmm. And you just have to accept that that's part of that. You know, that's just part of the journey. Like you're not, Mm -hmm. that doesn't mean you're doing a bad job. It doesn't mean you're less lucky than anyone else. That's just part of it. And, you know, what's important is getting up off the mat and, you know, punching back or, 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 or you know, keeping mm-hmm. going on the journey. So mm-hmm. I, think, I think that sort of understanding about the psychological challenges of the job mm-hmm. is, uh, is something I wish I had known uh, better come, going in. 
Oh, I think that's great. I mean, the end of the day, CEOs, founders, I mean, we're solving problems, right? Like constantly solving problems. And it's not a nine to five thing. It's a constant thing. Um, so I think, uh, yeah, that Mike Tyson, I would love to know if that really was him. Because honestly, that is one of the most genius quotes ever. Um, maybe he got punched in the face when he said it and it just kind of came out. But it, 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 it is a great one. I, I, I really appreciate that. Well, you know, there's one of my favorite questions, which is, uh, you know, can you share the name of a Canadian entrepreneur I think I said that right, entrepreneurial star or founder that you personally look up to? Uh, sure. Well, let me give you, let me give you two. We spoke already about Michelle Zatlin and I think, I think she deserves all the praise that, that she gets. You know, as I mentioned, I just think she's a, such a nice, um, thoughtful, genuine person and working on a set of problems that I think, you know, may not be front of mind for everyone, you know, making the internet work better and be safer and, and really fighting bad guys, frankly, who are out there. So I really admire, I, I admire how mission-driven she and her company are and how she's, you know, retained that, um, all those qualities of, 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 you know, goodness, I guess, as she's gone, gone through her journey and, and how helpful she's been, I think, to many other Canadian founders. Whenever I see her, she's always the first to ask how she can be helpful. So I, I, I you know, we spoke about her earlier. I, I think she deserves all the praise that she gets. Maybe I'll mention one of my, uh, one of my investors uh, who I talk to quite often, um, and that's David Chilton. And some of your, your listeners may know him mm -hmm. as the author of the Wealthy Barber series, which, you know, at, at one point um, was, you know, one of the, the best-selling, I think it was probably the best-selling personal finance book series in this country, maybe even, even beyond. And David's older than I am, and, but he's such a thoughtful and energetic guy. And he was a dragon on Dragon's Den. He's had many, many different successes to his name, but he retains a curiosity and an energy that I really admire. And he's always, you know, reaching out to me and calling in and sort of with different ideas or different thoughts about, about this or that, or different things that he's seen. And he's, mm -hmm. he's retained, I think, a curiosity and an energy and a humor that I really admire. It's, 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 I don't think I've ever met anyone that doesn't like him. He's just such a likable, <laughs> nice, friendly, friendly guy, but also a very shrewd businessman. So I think maybe there's some commonalities there. I think I'm, I really, uh, respect people who can maintain that humanity and be both shrewd business people, but also just genuine, genuine people as well. And, and I, I, I think maybe those are our traits that, that we should associate more with, uh, with, with Canadians uh, or not. I certainly think of them with, with those two uh, entrepreneurs in particular. Oh, I think, I think that, I think that's great. And it must've been a real excitement to have David's, uh, you know, on your cap table when, 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 when you did just to say, wow, you know, we got, we we're validated at this point. Well, I mean, that's right. validated it, as well, it, but it's an extra sense of validation, right? It, he took some convincing, but he's been a great, uh, he's, ever since he said, yes, he's been a great, uh, great friend and supporter. Oh, that, that is incredible. That is incredible. Well, Andrew Graham, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for sharing your journey. And uh, I, I look forward to you know, continuing following you until you become prime minister. Again, you got my vote. Um, I am going to go there. Um, but thank you so much for spending time and, uh, and, and, and sharing with our listeners. Well, thanks for having me. I think it's, it's uh, wonderful the work you do promoting Canadian entrepreneurs and giving them, giving them a voice. So thanks for having me uh, on, to, on the show. My pleasure. My pleasure. Ahoy, afternoon tea listeners. If you got this far, I assume you like this episode. And that is awesome. Thank you. In such a case, please rate and review Afternoon Tea Podcast and subscribe on 
Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your feeds from. Afternoon Tea is a podcast with a goal to share the stories of Canada's successful tech entrepreneurs in order to prepare the next wave of founders. We do have some great guests lined up for future episodes, but we would love to hear your thoughts too. Please do let us know who you think should be on the show. You can do so by emailing me at podcast at ttt.studio. That is P-O-D-C-A-S-T at T-T-T, that is three T's, dot studio. You will notice there is no dot com because we are that sophisticated. Furthermore, you can find us at social media at T-T-T underscore studios. I look forward to chatting with you soon.